This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you've ever taken an archaeology class or maybe watched a lot of natural history shows, then you know the importance of fire to human history. When humans were able to control fire and then cook with it, it changed everything. It changed our diet. It changed the trajectory of our development. So how did that happen? And what do we actually know about this incredibly significant period of our history? Well, Dr. Clayton McGill is a research fellow and assistant professor at Harriet Watt University's Global Research Center and joins us now. Dr. McGill, thank you for being here. My pleasure to join you this afternoon. What is it that we know about this? How did this happen and how are we learning about it? So the truth is we know very little about history in, in, uh, or fire in human history. And one of the reasons we have so much trouble finding out more about fire is because the remains are difficult to preserve or they're not easy to find. As we think about charcoal, it's a big, chunky, you know, black-looking thing, but that's not really well-preserved in sediments. So what we started to do uh, with my research team is look for the molecules that make up that charcoal and all the information that's locked in them. Okay, so how do you do that? Like, where do you look? What we do is we, we go to archaeology. Sure. What we do is we go to archaeological sites, and we end up getting the unfun parts of the archaeological digs, not the fossils, not the bones, not the artifacts, but the soils and sediments associated with what some archaeologists think might be a, a fire feature, something like a hearth or a, a bonfire place. And what we do is we take these little bits of soil, just a few grams, back to the lab, and we extract out of them the what's called polyaromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs. It's a fancy word for incompletely burned things. Sort of the black soot you see come out of cars, it carries the same molecules. And those molecules tell us what the fire was made of, how hot it burned, how long it burned, and therefore what it might have been used for. Interesting. So, Dr. Mugo, what can we see in human history that tells us fire was so important? Like, what kind of leap did humans make that we are attributing to fire? One of the most important leaps in human history, our human evolution, as, as we're talking about ages um, well over hundreds of thousands of years ago, is the beginning of social interactions and, and, and social behavior. So these could be things like cooperating for an activity. They could be uh, language. They could be working together to do a job that one single person can't do, like carrying a large uh, auroch, sort of uh, a pre-domesticated cow carcass across hundreds of kilometers. You can't do that by yourself. So what we found in the archaeological record is that as fire starts to emerge, or what we call controlled fire, we start to see things that change our understanding of human social behavior. We start to see children and adults in the same place. We start to see more than one adult not competing with one another, but working together. And maybe most interestingly, we start to see brain growth. We see the expansion of human brains that is directly linked to diet but also the way that we use social uh, behavior in our lives. 
That to me is the most fascinating part about this too. I remember taking a couple of archaeology classes and that leap where we see the difference in kind of what we can do in our, in our brain um, is really phenomenal. But are we, we're still trying to track that down, right? Like we, we see this happening, but we haven't been able to nail down exactly why. That's exactly true. There's a lot of different possibilities or reasons why brain encephalization could have happened. And we're starting to try to figure out which ones are the major drivers, which ones are, are simply coincidental. And that's really difficult because the archaeological record is so sparse and so fragmented, meaning that we never really find the first time something happens. We just find the first time that you can see it with, the, uh, with current excavations or something like that. So what we're starting to try to do is combine chemical analyses, like we're talking about here, with genetic analyses and fossil uh, analyses, start to bring together a picture of humans and behavior, even though there's no one there to tell us about it directly. Okay, I guess my question with that is, so are we wondering if the fire caused a change in our cultural behaviors, or did it cause us to start cooking food, and therefore that changed our diet, therefore that improved our brain power? I'd argue the two go hand in hand. I think probably what happened first, at least in my opinion, is that fire unlocked cooked food, essentially pre-digested food. But whenever you have cooked food, just like in the modern day, it starts to smell good. Other things start to notice. And that means you're going to have other people living in your community coming to, to, you know, maybe take a bite. But you also might have things like predators, carnivores, and uninvited guests, meaning that you have to work together as a team, not as an individual, in order to protect your food, your assets, and, and, and the area you live in. That also lends itself to things like sociality. Whenever you're close together trying to defend a common resource or take advantage of a common resource like food, you have to work together. And that means you need things like uh, body language, uh, oral language or vocal language, as well as other cooperative behaviors that require bigger brains. So there's sort of a positive feedback or a reinforcement mechanism there. Hmm. How long ago are we talking about, Dr. Miguel? So the research that we've done uh, in Europe is 250,000 years old, um, but I think that it would be short-sighted to say that this is the oldest instance of the kinds of behaviors we're talking about. There's some evidence that suggests that humans were using fire, maybe different than controlling fire, uh, at least 1.8 million years ago, with some locations in uh, Eastern Asia and North Africa suggesting controlled fire, meaning there's an intent and a purpose of maintaining the fire uh, as far back as maybe 700 or even 800,000 years ago. The problem is linking that with tools and the fossil record that's so important for understanding human intention. Finding burnt, butchered bones doesn't necessarily mean that humans or human ancestors were purposely cooking them. It just means that there was something that was butchered put into a fire one way or another. What we're trying to do with my research team and more widely in the community is linked that concept of intention, a specific resource being used for a specific reason with an expected outcome, put that together in the archaeological record, again, without any written words or anyone to tell us what they were thinking. Right. This is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. It's so much fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share science. That is Dr. Clayton McGill, Research Fellow and Assistant Professor at Harriet Watt University's Global Research Center. It was fascinating. One of my favorite classes that I ever took at school was an archaeology class, and that was just like that, actually. Love it. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Time for us to check in with our contributor, Scott Shantz, who has been out learning about different neighborhoods, even your own neighborhood, Scott. Yeah, exactly. I live in uh, North Vancouver. And uh, can I just ask you right off the top, Simi, have you been to the shipyards in you North know, Van? I have not, but I have heard so much about it. People rave about it. Yeah, it's really an incredible spot. Uh, you can get there by taking either the sea bus or driving, taking transit. But it's cool because the sea bus just goes right to Lonsdale Key, which is right beside the shipyards. But this is this spot in North Van that has kind of come on in the last like number of years, couple of years. I'm not sure the exact timeline, but it's pretty recent. I yeah, think, yeah, yeah, and it. It really is like, at least to me, as a person who grew up in the Lower Mainland, like nothing else, you know? It's this great sort of open space where there are restaurants and cafes and cool little shops and stuff. But there's also a really incredible use of of public space. Like in the winter, there's free ice skating. In the summer, there's a free splash park. There's so many tables and chairs and little places that you can take your family and sit undercover or not undercover. So it's like busy all the time. They have these incredible festivals on the weekends with food trucks and stuff. There's often live music down there. And then there's this boardwalk and, you know, a, a pier that you can go out on. And every time I go down there, I find myself asking, I'm like, this is a, like, this is incredible. How do we get a space like that? Like, this everywhere. Such a great like, how use. do we do this everywhere? Exactly that. As a person who's grown up here, I'm like, why don't we have more spaces uh, like this? Yeah. So I got in touch with a developer. Uh, Taylor Matheson is the president and CEO of a company called Key North Urban Development. And they worked with the city of North Vancouver to create the shipyards as we know it today. And I asked him, how does a place like this get built? And why don't we have more spaces like this in the lower mainland? What we did um, down at the shipyards is, you know, created a thoughtful, deliberate um, public space that can be activated year round uh, that is supported by a mix of businesses and um, really consciously kind of creating spaces for people to gather. So those ingredients are applied and can be applied in different scales and in different ways, you know, to suit different neighborhoods. And I think we're quite fortunate here with our waterfront location and the rich history of the site, which we are really um, embraced in, in the development down there. Um, but uh, I mean, I think, you know, you just, you see this type of placemaking executed in different neighborhoods and in different ways. I mean, I think we're quite fortunate in a few ways with our development partnership with the city of North Vancouver and the the amazing site that we have and the great consultant team that we had to really create what we have. But, um, but these ingredients can be applied in different ways and different yeah. scales. And you mentioned something there that I think is really interesting because it's so cool to be able to just go down there, you park the car somewhere, you take transit and everything you need is there. There's like stuff for the kids. There's like a place to eat, a place to just kind of sit and hang out. You can sort of bring your own picnic. There's entertainment, food trucks, the whole thing. Like I go down there and it makes me feel like I'm so glad that I live here. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, you feel like you're part of something that's happening. It feels like commercial and public space and the city and like development, it almost seems like the perfect union. I I think that what you've sort of identified is very much what we experienced here. I mean, not only um, did we come into this after the city of North Vancouver had put in, you know, years and and decades of work in their planning um, and very uh, deliberate, um, 
planning with the vision to create this space at the end of the day and they stay true to, to their um, to their vision and, and what they wanted to achieve. Um, but the way that they approached this partnership with the developers was really unique. It's in, it was done in a way that we've never seen before. The, we we're so lucky to have such a great team at the city of North Vancouver um, involved and engaged to uh, help create uh, what is there today and, and allow them to activate the space in the way that you're seeing them do today um, and still allow the developer, in, on, in our case, to have a successful commercial property and, and work so closely together. So that partnership between the municipality and the developer is uh, is the model that, um, that we're seeing uh, is really getting a lot of attention. Municipalities from across North America are coming here and asking questions to the city and to us and saying, you know, tell us more about this and how can we how can we apply this in our home? I mean, that was that was going to be my next question is, you know, are people from across the country and e- even further coming and seeing because it seems like it just works so well. I think anyone who goes there just thinks like, I would love more space like this. It's just fantastic. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely gotten a lot of uh, gotten a lot of attention in that respect. And, and um, the site has has won many awards from the architecture and the design and and the municipality has been awarded for their sort of um, placemaking and, and different things. So I think that the level of um, of exposure that we've got is, has really uh, drawn attention to, to similar yeah. neighborhoods that are looking for that. Taylor Matheson, he's the president of Key North Urban Development and responsible for uh, the GEM that is the shipyards in North Vancouver. Thanks so much for your time, Taylor. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Nice to chat to you. You got to come see it, Simi. It's fantastic. I clearly do because it does sound like everybody, it's going to be everywhere now and North Vancouver led the way. You bet. And it's a cool thing. It's uh, it's a thing to be proud of that, uh, you know, the city and development have worked together. We need more spaces like this. We need just things to happen like that. It seems like it's so hard to make them, but they did it there. So good on them for doing that. Scott, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's been a lot of criticism about air travel in the last year. If it's not airline problems, it's at the airport itself. You know, you've got tarmac delays, disorganization, and of course, long lineups at security. But that could be one area that is about to change, however. The federal government has announced a revamped verified traveler program to improve movement through international airports. It starts June 21st, and it means eligible airline passengers can keep your laptops, keep your electronics, keep your liquids in your carry-on bags, and get this, you don't have to remove your shoes, belts, or jackets. So this will be pretty handy for some people, but will it really change things? John Graddick is with us now, the head of the Aviation Management Program at McGill University. John, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Sammy. Do you think this is going to make a difference for travelers? Like, will we notice this? I think so. I think, you know, this is a uh, copy of a program that's been in the U.S. for about nine years called TSA PreCheck. Uh, so if you've been in the U.S., you see those signs and those lineups and those pieces of equipment that kind of are different than your regular lineup uh, for um, security. And it's a process that really has the ability to, to speed up <clears throat> the, uh, the one. The, the lines are shorter, hopefully. And the methodology and the practices they're using for security are much different. So they have new equipment. They have new ways of, of validating what's in your carry-on. They don't have to open it up. You don't have to take your laptop and get it scanned for explosives and all that good stuff that's traditionally part of the process. 
So th- there, there's a lot of new things that are made available through this verified traveler program that makes it different than what we normally would expect in security. Okay, well, when you put it that way, now I wonder, well, what took us so long to get this? Ah, well, <laughs> welcome to Canadian aviation. <laughs> uh, you know, we, 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 you know, we, we tend to basically are cautious. We're, we're, we're slow followers, um, you know, and I think that there's a lot of things going on in terms of int- introducing improvements to the way security has been done. Uh, Canada basically is looking at making sure that it doesn't, you know, jump the shark and start things too early. They want to see that, you know, we, we have a process in place that's mm-hmm. tested and verified, and typically we rely on other countries to kind of lead the ball. Okay, so what has been the problem at our airports, John? Has it been the security issues, or are there more things that we need to deal with? No, no, security was definitely one. If you were in the lineup at Vancouver during the summer of last year, you know that three or four hours in 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 the security lineup was not unheard of. And the typical answer we got was that there's short staff. Uh, and that was the case, and we had a couple of walkouts, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that caused even worse uh, lineups. So staffing seems to have been the biggest issue last summer. Uh, everybody was kind of caught short by the airlines trying to put together a schedule that was very aggressive and having a lot of people come through the airports. Uh, and the airport systems, the security, the baggage systems just weren't ready with the staff that needed. And that problem has, by and large, been rectified this summer. Okay, so then does this is this a good sign, do you think, for travelers? I think so. I think, you know, we're, we're on the road to, to, to recovery. It, it, it's still going to be a busy summer. Uh, it just does not guarantee a, a stress-free airport environment. Uh, there are a lot of things that have to happen properly in order for the airports to work together. You know, as an integrated machine, security, it's pre-screening, it's just one of those elements. We have things like baggage systems. We have things like air traffic control. We have things like Nav Canada. We have airlines themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of things that have to, you know, be be well orchestrated uh, and played. In, and it's, and like a good orchestra, you have to make sure you're playing the same tune all the time. And the airports is very much an example of that. That it doesn't take much for one person playing out of tune to destroy the whole show. So. We want to make sure that, you know, we're doing one step at a time to make sure that things are in concert. Okay, so question is, how do people sign up for this then? If they're listening to do you have to have, be a Nexus person or do you have to go through that whole process to get this or is there going to be a simplified version? Well, right now, the way they've set it up, it's Nexus. Man. That, that could change. I'm not sure how that, you know, what the next version of this thing could look like. Uh, but right now, to launch it on June 21, uh, they had to fall back into an, a tried and true system that has a way of validating who you are and does a background check on you to make you a verified traveler. And that happens to be Nexus. So yes, you have to apply for Nexus, $50 charge to get into the Nexus program. Plus you have to go through interviews, submit some documentation and to get your card. They're processing about 10 to 20,000 a month. So it's not an instantaneous process. It's going to take you a few months. So, uh, be prepared for some patience as you wait in line for people's applications to be processed. Okay, in your opinion, what else can airports do to help with this traveling process, given what we've seen the last couple of years? What do they need to do? Oh, I think that, you know, there, we, we, this is just the first step in the security screening process that needs to get changed. If I look at what's, what the world is doing in terms of, you know, changing the way in which we do screening, uh, like I said, there, there's new equipment, new screening technologies that have a much more advanced CT scan 
that look that's people look at bags in three dimensions so you don't have to worry about opening up the bag and checking out bottles and stuff uh, and speaking of bottles liquids and gels uh, right now we still have a hundred milliliter limit so if you you know you're buying a bottle of shampoo or a can of shaving cream that's 250 or 350 mils and you put that in your carry-on bag guess what confiscated thrown out uh, and so the UK has basically lifted the limit, that 100 mil limit. I think they're up to one liter now. So anything that's commercially available for for skincare, or for for shaving, or perfumes, or or, or uh, hair products is now eligible. So that's another step that Canada should look at very seriously is to remove that 100 mil limit that we currently have for uh, for liquids and gels. Okay. So any advice then for people like from your perspective, you studied the system. How can we make it through what is promising to be a very busy traveling summer? Um, I, I'm telling people not to worry, you know, not to, not to check their bags that they can get, get away without putting bags in the system. But that means you overload your carry-on bag, which means you might get a, a little bit of a hassle over at uh, our friends at security. So yeah, re- remember that the 100 milliliter limit is in place. Don't take any liquids or gels that have a container greater than 100 milliliters. Uh, hopefully that will change, but right now that's the rule. And if there's one thing that basically slows down the process, it's that. Uh, make sure that you know you 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 put everything that you have in terms of liquids and gels into a into a, a bag, a Ziploc bag, you know, and then make sure that they have that bag access to that bag fairly easily when they open up your uh, your uh, carry-on to have a look at what's inside. So that that's probably the one thing that you want to make sure, but keep all, keep all of your bottles and liquids and gels in one place and uh, be ready to pull it out when they ask for it. And pay attention. I know we've all been stuck there in the lineup, right, with somebody who gets to the front and then, then they start getting everything organized. Oh, man, yeah. There's nothing more frustrating than that. But, you know, you, people don't fly very often, and, you know, we're going to get a lot more of that this summer. So, you know, the, the, key, up, the key word in terms of behavior uh, for everybody, lots of patience. Get there early. I haven't changed that. Two hours for a Canadian flight, three hours for an international flight, and be prepared for uh, for a little bit of a wait at security. John, I thought those are my hours. But that's exactly what I do. Listen, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. No public inquiry. Now, I think that's what a lot of us took away from David Johnson's foreign interference report. No public inquiry, and he plans to hold public hearings and to come out with a final report in October. Now, his target there, he says it's about how intelligence is shared within government. So how was his report put together? Johnson reviews classified documents and intelligence and media coverage, and he says that he found no basis to conclude that candidates were part of a network working together with foreign interference. But let's break this down, like what this report had to say and what it didn't. Eugene Lang is an adjunct professor of policy studies at Queen's University and advisor to the Canadian Association of Defence and Security Industries. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. What was your reaction to the report yesterday from what you heard? Underwhelming. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Why? Well, I had the occasion to read it last night, and uh, um, let me just say I generally agree with Mr. Johnson's view that it would be very difficult to hold a public inquiry owing to the nature of the intelligence and the inability to release that. And I agree that there is an inability to release, release intelligence for the reasons that, that he gives. 
Where I find his report wanting is in his understanding about how government really works or should work in transmitting information among officials and between officials and the political level of the government. I think he demonstrated a rather superficial understanding of that and tended to blame officials largely, if not exclusively, for breakdowns in the transmittance of intelligence information. And I think that really fundamentally misunderstands the relationship between officials and the political level of the government and national security. Okay, when you say he blames officials, is that is he saying, listen, you didn't emphasize this enough? He talks about how these procedures for transferring information across departments in the government uh, tend, to exclu- tend to exclude the political level of the government and that you know, there really isn't a lot of priority attached to certain types of intelligence such that it would rise to the surface and this sort of thing. Um, but again, I think that the, there's an obligation on the part of the government to set a culture and expectations around national security. And the procedures and protocols and relationships within the government flow from that culture and those expectations. Uh, This government's been in office for seven and a half years. This isn't a new government. So Mm -hmm. you can't argue that, well, you know, they're green, they're new, uh, national security is new to them, it's a new file for them, they're still feeling their way. That's not the case. They've been in office a very long time. It's the third Trudeau government in seven and a half years. And the fact that these protocols and procedures are as underdeveloped as they seem to be uh, and as and as is documented by Johnson, is at least as much the fault of the political leadership as it is of officials and people working in CSIS, failing to set the particular the, the appropriate culture and expectations and getting the relationships right between the senior officials, the ministers, the prime minister, and their staff. This is what I was wondering about this. It's one thing to say, oh, well, they didn't tell us. And meanwhile, you know, on the bureaucracy side of things, they're saying, well, we, you know, nobody was listening. But it seems to me that when this issue first came up months ago, the, the Canadian public was outraged and something needed to be done, but nothing seemed to happen. That certainly was something within the purview of the government, was it not? To say, okay, we're going to change things. Yes, and I think it's been a while for them to acknowledge that their internal processes and procedures are inadequate to the task. And this is partly what Johnson has revealed, but it's also come out before Johnson in the whole debacle around the Michael Chong thing, where, you know, at one point the prime minister said, well, the intelligence never got to me, but in fact a memo did get to his department, but I guess it wasn't elevated to his office. I mean, this has been kind of, a, as a friend of mine described, a clown car that's been driving around for months and for years now. <laughs> and, and it's only very recently that the government, again, has started to, they've been forced to acknowledge that they have deep-seated internal problems here, at least that much. At least we can say that, and Johnson more or less confirms that. My issue is, with him, he lays almost all the blame, well, actually, he lays all the blame, really, at the feet of the officials, um, public servants, and people working in CSIS. I definitely think there's some blame there, but fundamentally, this government's been in office for seven and a half years. They should be setting the culture, the expectations, developing the proper relationships, and all of the other protocols and procedures flow from that. Right. That's how it works. 
That's how it works in a normally functioning government when it comes to national security. I've been there. I've seen it. I worked in, what, three or four different governments. This kind of thing would not happen in a normally functioning government that takes national security seriously, especially when it involves a senior sitting member of parliament where there's apparently credible intelligence that indicates threats to his family because of something that he's done in parliament, exercising his democratic responsibilities as a member of parliament. If that isn't a fundamental issue of national security, I don't know what is. Now, do you get the sense that it is being taken seriously now, or do you still think we're a ways off from having that happen? I get the sense that they're trying to figure out internal, internally in the government how to improve these procedures now because they've been caught out. Uh, it's been revealed. And they are coming to the realization that the protocols and procedures are inadequate to the task. So I do think that they're working on this and trying to figure out what to do. This is not rocket science, by the way. This is pretty basic stuff. This is pretty basic public administration procedures. It should not be that difficult to figure out how to fix this. It should not. Alyssa, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. I committed to listening very carefully and abiding by the recommendations that the former Governor General made. We will be following his recommendations. You know, there was a lot of bureaucratic speak in David Johnson's report and the response, right, into all of that about foreign interference. Oh, it's all about the systems and how we disseminate security information. Okay, sure. But how does that help protect those who have been targeted for foreign interference and have been told so by Canadian security agencies. Where is the uh, government outrage on that? And what are we doing to protect those people? Like, for instance, longtime NDP MP Jenny Kwan has often expressed very vocal support for democratic freedoms in Hong Kong, has criticized China's treatment of the Uyghurs. Well, we know that she was also targeted for interest Uh, by the Chinese government, too. So how does she feel about the report and what has happened? Well, joining us now is Jenny Kwan, NDP MP for East Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. What did you think about that yesterday? Well, I was very disappointed with the report. I think that there are a number of areas to which I think the analysis has been deficient, uh, if not flawed. Right from the beginning, the fact is, is that Mr. Johnston was appointed by the Prime Minister. And that was something that the political parties indicated that it was not good enough and that we wanted to see a public inquiry. But Mr. Johnston went ahead to say that he's not recommending a public inquiry, even though he says that actually he says it would have been the easy thing for him to do. I would argue that it would have been the hard thing for him to do because he would have to publicly say that the prime minister is wrong with this process, that he should have embarked on a public inquiry from the get-go. So that would have been the hard thing for him to do, but it would have been the right thing for him to do. Mr. Johnston indicated in his report that you need political buy-in. This needs to be above the political fray to gain Canadians' trust. Well, this process right from the get-go did not have the trust of all political parties. They did not agree to this process. So hence, we're into the political fray, 
And uh, as a result, the work that he's done um, is deemed to be flawed. And so instead of carrying on, what we really need to do is to say, you know, push the pause button and say, look, we need a process that is absolutely 100% bulletproof, one that all political parties could agree to, and that would be to choose a commissioner for a public inquiry. How did it make you feel to hear that yesterday, though, knowing that you were one of the people who has been targeted? Like, do you feel as though the Canadian government has your back? Well, I'm dismayed with this whole process uh, all the way through. And, and, and it feels like the government is just carrying on and say, look, there's nothing to see here. Well, there's clearly something to see here. And there's grave concerns. And what's at risk? Our democratic system uh, is at risk. Individuals are at risk. Um, Members of parliament potentially um, are being targeted or are deemed as persons of interest. Everyday Canadians are being impacted as well. So this has grave consequences, and it will continue to have grave consequences if we don't do it right And right now, the process that we've embarked on is not the right process. Carrying on just to say, hey, I'm just going to carry on and move forward um, is not going to do the trick. Those questions will still linger in the hearts and minds of Canadians. And that's why it is so critical that there be a public inquiry. And I'm just so dismayed that that didn't happen. In the report, uh, I should also point out uh, another area, the... Mr. Johnston pointed out that there are these gray areas to which um, potentially involvements between the diplomats and the Diaspora Community Association, where they could be um, victims of being utilized uh, of, of by foreign states, uh, and, and they, the foreign states are seeking their connections uh, with their mother country um, to to address concerns or to raise issues around uh, potential interference. Well, in this gray zone that has been noted by Mr. Johnston, the report doesn't really talk about it a lot. It doesn't actually provide very much information on how this is happening, what is going to be done about it. And that, to me, uh, is a major concern uh, as well. So... How does this change what you have been doing? I mean, you're, you've obviously been very vocal in your, in your discussions about human rights in China and support for groups like the Uyghur. Does this change anything for you? Or do you feel like now that you know there perhaps is an eye on you, do you have to be more careful? Well, I got elected to do this important work, and I'm going to hold true to what I believe in, and that is basic human rights, and I'm going to call it out. When I see it, I am going to keep on fighting for the people of Hong Kong. In fact, just this last weekend, I attended uh, a photo exhibition by um, activists here in Vancouver, really providing a beautiful exhibition of what went on in the situation of Hong Kong and raising the public awareness on it. I'm going to continue to do this important work. I'm going to continue to advocate for Uyghurs uh, and and Taiwan, and so on. And so it's not going to change my values in that way. But what's concerning to me is that the Canadian government is not doing what's necessary to make sure we get to the bottom of the issue around foreign interference. And that, to me, is absolutely essential for Canadians to have faith 
in their political system, in their elected officials. For us, for me as a Chinese Canadian, for me to not have a cloud hanging over my head, always having to defend myself and people who look like me, that has to be dealt with in a serious way. That's why you need to have a public inquiry that is completely agreed to by all the political parties so that nobody can question that process or its outcome. In the report, I find it astounding, to be honest with you, where the rapporteur, Mr. Johnston, indicated that there were irregularities observed in the case of Mr. Hangdong's nomination in 2019, uh, and I'm quoting this now, and there is well-grounded suspicion that the irregularities were tied to the PRC consulate in Toronto with whom Mr. Dong maintains relationships. Now, he goes on to say that Mr. Dong was not aware of this, so therefore he says this is all good. Uh, And then, at the same time, the Prime Minister's office, the, the Prime Minister knew about it. So, the Prime Minister then just says, okay, we're just going to carry on uh, with Mr. Dong. So, and, and the rapporteur says, but that's okay. The Prime Minister just concluded that no action could be taken. And the rapporteur says, yep, that's okay. There's nothing to see here. Like, I find that really challenging. Why did the Prime Minister just say there is no action that needs to be taken? even though in the report it says that irregularities were observed and that they were well-grounded suspicion that these irregularities were tied to the PRC consulate in Toronto. That, to me, should be looked into deeper uh, and to find out exactly why didn't the Prime Minister act on that. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's Jenny Kwan, NDP MP for East Vancouver. We also know security agencies have told her she was also kind of targeted um, for foreign interference and influence. And because she has been very outspoken on the issue of human rights for Hong Kong, for uh, Uyghurs in China. And now she's saying, listen, this was wholly unsatisfying and it, it didn't work. Essentially, this report yesterday and she's calling on still for the public inquiry and for the prime minister to step in, do more, uh, be more forthcoming, stronger in the response to this. This is Mornings with Simi. Stranded, I mean, sailings to and from Bowen cancelled. It was a huge IT failure that meant no website, no app, no technology on a Monday on a long weekend. I mean, it was a terrible situation for BC Ferries and all the people who were relying on it to go somewhere or get home. So what happened? Well, we're going to find out right now. Nicholas Jimenez is with us, the President and CEO of BC Ferries. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Sammy. What happened on Monday? Well, uh, we had an unfortunate uh, failure in our Kamloops data center, and that caused uh, a number of our applications to go down. The, the problem occurred uh, sometime in the 5 to 6 o'clock in the morning period. Uh, teams immediately started working to identify the issue, isolate the root cause, and then bring all the other systems back up online. But that took a number of hours, and it wasn't until the early afternoon that we were able to resolve it. So uh, it caused, I mean, the sailings thankfully went, uh, but certainly people were going to be challenged to communicate with us either through our call center, using the app, uh, getting conditions updates, or even booking online. But uh, it didn't impact sailings that day, though it did impact customers, again, who were trying to communicate with us. So we're 
really sorry this happened, and we know it's very frustrating for customers, and it's something we, you know, we, we plan to do better in the future. Okay, and how do you plan to do better in the future then? Well, I mean, we're obviously today and yesterday and all day Monday looking at the different uh, reasons why this particular issue occurred. It's not something we've seen before. Uh, you know, as you know, with technology systems, uh, you build them to be robust and to handle, uh, you know, your busiest day. That wasn't the issue here. It was something more um, more unusual in terms of the way the systems were behaving. So uh, we've already immediately taken steps to make sure that this particular issue doesn't happen, even while we investigate sort of the deeper root cause. We're stepping back and looking at our entire IT architecture, um, relying on some outside help to do that work to make sure that it's as resilient as it needs to be to run the business today and in the future. Is there not a plan B, though, when IT goes down, like an old-fashioned call that people can make? or It just seemed to us, from our media perspective here, Nicholas, that there was nobody from BC Ferries reaching out to us to say, help us get this information out. Well, I, th- I mean, I think you're right. We, we, ha- we struggle with communications on Monday. Part of the challenge was the normal... Uh, the normal sort of redundancies that we have for communications were also impacted. So we were relying primarily on Twitter. Um, obviously, that's that's helpful, but that's not enough. Uh, like I said, from from every event that happens, big or small, we have to learn. And in this case, uh, we need to fortify the communications protocols that we have uh, when these kind of situations occur. So that's something uh, we'll be immediately addressing. Okay, immediately, as in in time for the next long weekend to make sure this doesn't happen again. Well, it's not about it's not just about long weekends. Quite frankly, this if this happened on a Wednesday, you know, uh, of a quiet week, I'd be just as upset. Uh, obviously, fewer customers would be impacted. But any time we have an outage, and any time we have uh, our sort of our protocols not working perfectly, you know, that's an opportunity for us to get better. So, yes, of course, we want it to work on a long weekend, but we want it to work every day. We run the business 365 days a year. Now, the Ferry and Marine Workers Union had made a good point. Their frontline workers end up taking the brunt, right, of all the confusion, customers' anger and frustration. And then we can't find managers to come out front and kind of tell us what's going on. So what will you do to change that? Um, Well, I I was saying before, I think that we had, you know, we had people in place on that day uh, to to be our sort of our communications uh, leads, what what wasn't happening well was the fact that we weren't getting information out, not just to media, but also to our customers, you know, in, in online channels. So, uh, like I said, the protocols are being reevaluated as we speak, and they will be better, uh, again, not just for the next long weekend in July and August and September, but, but for every weekend and for every weekday. Okay, so that's the IT issue, that that the communication issue. But let's talk a bit about this Bowen Island issue here as well, because clearly, I mean, the mayor there and, and residents there are not happy with the lack of sailings and what's been going on. What's happening there? Well, um, I mean, what we had was an unfortunate uh, situation on Saturday afternoon where we could not crew the vessel. So we, we have teams that are deployed on shifts to run uh, the different sailings on, that, on, on a, any particular day, on any of our routes. And on that day, uh, when one of the, the members of the team wasn't able to attend work, we have reserve pools uh, where we can lean on other people sort of who are cross-trained to work on different vessels and different routes. Um, those pools, uh, again, weren't able, from those pools, we weren't able to deploy anybody onto that, that particular crew. And we had to make the very difficult decision to cancel the sailings in the afternoon and the evening. We immediately 
put in place water taxis. We ran 43 trips, carried almost a thousand people. That's obviously not the same as running a ferry service, but in these situations, uh, which don't happen very often, um, but in this particular case, we had to move very, very quickly to get people on and off the island as best we could. And we know that that wasn't enough for many, many people, their lives and their, their weekends were disrupted. And for that, we're truly sorry. Is there, is this a sign that that Bowen Island uh, route needs to be, uh, you know, reverbished? It needs to a rethink. It has to be like bumped up. Well, like I said, this, this doesn't happen very often. Uh, and when it does happen, obviously it generates a lot of profile attention. Um, I think it speaks to a bigger issue and that is just, the staffing in our business generally, um, you know, we are we are struggling as a business post-pandemic uh, to put enough people into the business. If you were traveling on ferries last summer, you will know it was a very difficult summer. Uh, we've learned a lot. We changed a lot of things in our staffing model subsequent to last summer. Uh, and so we put them in place for this year. There's a long list of things uh, that we're doing. Uh, we've hired what more people in the last 12 months than we have at any time in the company's history, 800 for this summer alone. Um, you know, and yet we know we still have opportunity. We still have challenges in terms of being very resilient in terms of sailing. Uh, so we're, we're going to, we're going to always be at risk uh, in this very near period while we deal with a shortage of, of people Um to make sure that all the sailings go. Now, I will say, and again, this is taking nothing away from the people on Bowen Island who really suffered on Saturday afternoon. Need to me. You know, every other part of the business ran effectively uh, in terms of sailings over the weekend. We had 400 sailings a day. We moved something like 400,000 or more customers over that period. So, so we planned and we were able to execute. We just had this one very unfortunate incident on Bowen Island. Okay, so then what can you say to people who, who were frustrated, who were stuck in that lineup, who it kind of did ruin their long weekend? Well, I mean, obviously, we're, we're really sorry. I mean, we have, uh, we, we have the uh, program called Making It Right, where, you know, if you incur out-of-pocket expenses due to delays or cancellations that are within our control, we have the ability to receive requests for compensation. So people should know that. There's information on our website that explains the process for that. Uh, and we, you know, we will continue to do our best to continue to kind of revisit our staffing model. We, we didn't get into this situation overnight. I think people need to know, you know, we've really struggled during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. You know, a lot of industries, including ours, are struggling with labor shortages. Our wages have fallen behind. We're opening up collective agreements this summer with the union to address that. Um, but it'll take some time, like not weeks and days, but months and years for our business and others in similar sectors to recover uh, from the, the challenges we have with very tight labor markets. Well, I would say next time, though, call us. We can certainly help get the word out about issues. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks. And we will absolutely use the whatever support we can get from you and others in the media. I appreciate Excellent. that. Thank you. That's Nicholas Jimenez, President and CEO of BC Ferries. That was one of the frustrating things, really. Like for us, for our perspective on Monday, is that we could see what was happening there. We were trying to get information so that we could pass that information on to you if you were stuck in that lineup or wondering what the heck was going on. And we couldn't get the information either. So there are tools that could be used in situations like that. And hopefully that will not happen again. Again, right? Fingers crossed. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.
This is Mornings with Simi. 